If you don't already have your Bible open, uh, please do that. Uh, Open with me to the book of John. Let me invite you to turn in there with me now. By the way, for those of you who don't know me, I'm Pastor James. Um, Nice to meet you. I'm grateful that you're here with us today. Uh, Today we're going to be wrestling with the second half of John chapter 2. And we're going to see a much different side of Jesus than what we saw last week at the wedding at Cana. Uh, At the wedding, uh, if you were here with us, at the wedding at Cana in the first half of John 2, we saw a very gracious and kind Jesus, right? Uh, But that's certainly not today, because today we're going to see a man of great zeal, uh, a a not-so-happy Jesus, if I can say it that way. And yet, as intense as this text is, it's actually a great gift uh, to those of us who gather together as the church. See, for those of us who call themselves or call ourselves followers of Jesus, we know this, that it's very easy to gather together and simply go through the motions of worship. You know, it's kind of ironic um, But actually, we can come together in a place like this to worship. And as we do that, we can find ourselves slipping into the trap of missing the actual purpose of worship. You know, especially here uh, in a churched culture with churched people, things can very easily, if we're not careful, things can become dry. We can lose the heart of worship. And so Jesus is going to address this issue and these types of people here in our text. He's going to show us at the back half here of John chapter 2 and actually carry this into John chapter 3 that it's actually not just the lost. It's not just the non-religious who need him, but it's actually the religious as well. And so with that, Let's dive into our text this morning. And my goal for today is to show us three truths on true worship. Three truths on true worship that I hope will once again, or maybe for the very first time, stir our affections to have a greater heart of gratitude and a deeper sense of reverence and awe for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So here's how we start today. This is verse 12. And by the way, this is a transitional verse that brings us from the scene at the wedding now into the temple, okay? Um, This isn't necessarily um, sequential, like this happened in order, okay? But it's a transitional verse to bring us from scene to scene. John is making a very theological point here, okay? Read the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and you'll see things more in order, sequential. John doesn't necessarily do that. He's not concerned with the order of Jesus's life and how they happened in order. He's concerned with more theology. And so John writes this. He says, after this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. So we have here, we're introduced to the characters that are on the scene. We have Mary, we have Jesus' half-brothers, okay? And this is the five disciples who have decided to follow Jesus up to this point, 
And we see there's a quick pit stop, we're told, in Capernaum for a few days. But ultimately, where Jesus is headed is Jerusalem. That's where he's going. And why? Why? Well, we're told, John tells us here, because the Passover of the Jews was at hand. The Passover is coming. Now, Passover, if you don't know, (laughs) Passover was a really big deal for Jewish people. Very big deal. Every single Jewish male within a 15-mile radius or 25-kilometer radius of Jerusalem was required to be there. It was law. But even with that, many people we know would make that trip to Jerusalem even though they lived much further than that. They would travel, some people would travel days, a week, just to get to Jerusalem for Passover. And Passover was meant to be this holy and reverent time spent together as a nation, as a people, to offer sacrifices to God and to remember the Lord. It was a time uh, where they gathered together to remember the Lord's goodness, his faithfulness, particularly recalling when God delivered the Israelite people from the nation of Egypt, okay? And so Jesus, being a good Jew, right, a good Jewish man, being a man who followed the law perfectly, he arrives at Jerusalem to give his sacrifice and to participate in the week-long feast that would happen after the day of Passover. He's there for this. But what we're going to see is that when he and the others arrive at the temple, what we find is it looks much more like a carnival than a place of holy assembly. Look at what we see here in verse 14. It says this, In the temple, Jesus found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, as we walk through this story, I want you to, I won't make note of every single one of these, so I want you to make a mental note of this and notice the contrast. I want us to see the difference between the attitude of Jesus and the attitude of the religious leaders who are in the temple. Notice that, that, that difference that John is pointing out to us. And in this, in that comparison and contrast, we see our first truth for today, which is this, that true worship involves zeal for God's glory. Okay? That's what I want us to know. Three truths on true worship. The first in this text we see is that true worship True worship, real, genuine worship involves zeal for the glory of God, his glory and his glory alone. So back in the temple, we find some interesting things going on. We're told here that people are selling animals and that there are also money changers here doing business. And Jesus walks into the temple and he is sort of, you can kind of imagine the scene, he's sort of observing this as a kind of bystander, observing what's happening and going on. And keep in mind, as we're reading through the story, that this is his father's house. Okay, Don't forget that. 
God is meant to be glorified and worshiped here in this place, in the temple. But what Jesus is observing here is corruption. And he is not happy about it one bit. And to really, for us now, like 2,000 years later, I think the vast majority of us in this room, non-Jewish, right? We're not like Old Testament Jews. We didn't come out of that, most likely. And so for us to fully grasp the weight of this, we have to think about and understand the biblical storyline of the temple and its significance. See, we, we know that in the beginning, God gifted the first human beings, Adam and Eve, a garden sanctuary. It was a gift to them. And in that place, we know that he walked with them in the cool of the day. He was with them. His presence was dwelling with them in this garden sanctuary. And we call that place Eden. But because of sin, we are told that Adam and Eve, all their descendants, including us, were banished from that garden sanctuary. And so God in his grace later on, after the Israelites are rescued out of Egypt, delivered out of Egypt specifically, we know that God gives his people, we'll call it this, this, this movable sanctuary. And it was called a temple. It was a thing that, like a tent, huge, right? Bigger than this room. You could build it up and tear it back down. So, cause they were a nomadic people, always moving. God gives them the tabernacle. And that tabernacle was a place where God dwelt as well, just like in the garden sanctuary. He dwelt in the tabernacle. It was a place where sacrifices were made on behalf of the sin of the people, the continual sin, the ongoing sin of the people. But then years go by and the Israelites arrive at the promised land, the land that they were promised all the way back to the days of Abraham. They move into Jerusalem. And there they are instructed very specifically on how to build what we call this permanent sanctuary known as the temple. So the progression, garden sanctuary, tabernacle, movable sanctuary, to now permanent sanctuary called the temple. Now, in Israel's history, we know that eventually the people fall into idolatry. They turn away from God. And so what happens? Nation, a nation comes, destroys that temple. The people are taken out of Jerusalem, out of Israel. They are exiled. They are removed from their home outside of the presence of God. But time goes by, years and years go by actually, and eventually we know in the history they are allowed to go home. And not only that, they're given permission to rebuild that temple. And so what do they do? They go back to Jerusalem and they rebuild the temple. And it's that temple, that rebuilt temple, that Jesus arrives into. That's the progression, that's the storyline. But again, when he gets into that temple, when he arrives in that place for Passover, what he sees is chaos. There are all sorts of problems. And of course, of course, it's worth asking, why is the selling of animals and money changing even a big deal? What's the, what's the problem here? What's the real problem with what's happening in the temple? Well, 
there are actually at least three problems with this scene. But there's at least three. I'll give you the big three, okay? First of all, we know that we have a problem of, we'll use the word desecration here. Okay, if you're taking notes, it's not on the screen, but you could write that down. We have an issue of desecration. Okay, remember, you were required to make this pilgrimage, this journey to Jerusalem for Passover. And when you got there, you needed, again, it's a requirement, you had to offer your sacrifice your animal. But because the journey was so long, it was common for the Israelite people to not bring any animals with them, right? And so it would make no sense, not really practical, and it would be really harsh to have to like carry your oxen and carry your sheep or like carry around dirty pigeons for days or weeks like up into Jerusalem. That wouldn't make a lot of sense. And so what you would do is that you would just go there with your family and with your belongings, like maybe like a a pop-up like tent, actually what they would do, uh, is go there, make that journey, and then you would just buy your animals when you arrived, when you got to the temple. So there was some convenience in this system that was created. And then along with that, we also know that if you were journeying from outside of Palestine, Palestine. So if you were not a resident of Palestine, then what also you needed to do was change your money. They used different types of currency. And you needed to use the currency of Palestine to buy these animals. The money's not the same. And so on the outside, reading this text initially, this just seems like a nice service, right? They're a convenient service. Just get to Jerusalem And then, right, you can change your money, and then you can buy your animal, then you can make your sacrifice, then you can feast for the week. No problem, all good. But in actuality, what was going on here was desecration. And why? Well, because this service of money changing, buying animals, was being done inside the temple itself. And that's a problem. See, we know from previous generations that they had done or provided this service as well, but it was always done much further away. Actually, like beyond the Mount of Olives, it was done at a distance. The the temple is a holy, set-apart place, but now the people, we're told, have set up shop right in the middle of the court of the Gentiles. And so part of Jesus's anger is in the simple fact that this is an inappropriate location for doing business. Take your business elsewhere. This is a place of worship. This is a place of of holiness. This is the Father's house. But what they had done is turn this into a, a noisy street market. If you've ever been to Jerusalem, Um, Some of you might have. I've been there before once. I'd love to go back. Uh, But you'll notice this. It's almost like, if you could picture here in Seoul, it's almost like, um, think of like the street market in like Dongdaemun at night, like that covered space. And there's like street vendors or maybe in Myeongdong and you're walking by and everyone's trying to get your, your attention, right? Eat here, eat here, eat our snack, whatever. Like everyone's selling the same thing. Right? They're all saying, selling dokboki, but everyone wants you to eat theirs. Right? And so they're, they're telling you, eat our, eat this, eat this. Right? 
There's a lot of noise. If you go to Jerusalem, even today, and you go to these underground street markets, it's way more intense than that. People are yelling, shouting, trying to sell things, and you're overwhelmed by this, right? And then you're negotiating back and forth because it's never the right price. That's what's happening inside of the temple. It had become a place of negotiation, a place of buying and selling. But not only did it involve desecration here, there was also exploitation happening on this scene as well. That's the second problem. There's not just desecration, there's exploitation. Okay, and so get this. It's not just that busyness and business was going on here. It was that shady, corrupt business was going on here. We're actually not told here in John's account, we're told elsewhere, but we know what was happening is that the merchants there, the sellers, were actually purposefully and intentionally inflating the prices of the animals. And not only that, the money changers were charging ridiculous fees, absurd fees for you to be able to change out your money. Uh, maybe some of you have, have traveled to another country. Uh, you get off the plane, right? And what do you need to do when you get there? Especially if it's not like first world, like t- takes credit cards, right? What's the first thing you have to do? You have to go there and you have to change your money, right? If you've done that, you understand this whole process. Um, I remember uh, I was probably 20, 20, 21 years old um, and I was with a friend um, and he and I were visiting his father who had established a small Bible college in Kenya. Um, in the areas of Kwajenga and Dundura, uh, a lot, extreme poverty there. And, and, and he had established that. And I remember getting there um, and I, I made the mistake of not exchanging my money beforehand. Um, and where was I going to do that anyway in America, right? It was pretty difficult. And so I got there and I knew the exchange rate. Like I had looked it up beforehand. And when I got there, there was just one booth. That's it got there and looked and gave all of this USD and then calculator came out and this is how much you get. And I looked at it and I'm like, mm, <laughs> this is like, this is way off. Like maybe 75% of what I should have gotten was given back to me. And so I actually asked like, oh, is this correct? Like, I think it's supposed to be, you know, I pulled out my phone. I think it's supposed to be here. And they're like, oh, it's, there's a fee. There's a fee for changing the money what am I supposed to do, right? I didn't say anything, just, okay, graciously took the money. I'm there for missions and things, right? You know, I'm there to teach the Bible. Like, what am I going to argue, you know? And so just took the money and, and went on my way. Or maybe another example, um, some of you um, have been to Disney World before. It's the same thing there, right? And I could say that because my brother worked there for a decade. Okay, he was pretty high up there an executive level, so I'll call out Disney for a second. But, you know, you get there, and what you don't know on the website is you get there, you get to Disney, and then you, you, know, you drive there, and everyone's happy. Yeah, we're going in. You got the hats, the T-shirts, whatever. And you go there to park your car, and parking in Orlando at Disney for the day, parking the day is $50. So you get there, and like, here's parking. You got to pay $50. That's on top of, like, the $150 per ticket to get in. And then once you're in the park, what they don't tell you is that you're going to spend like $20 for chicken fingers. It's crazy. It's like $8 for a water. 
But what are you going to do? Like, they got you. And it's the happiest place on earth. So, so what are you going to do? Everyone's happy. And what are you going to say? Like, yeah, like, get on. It's a small world. You're not eating today. You know, like, what are you going to do? Right? And so what do you, you just spend hundreds of dollars. You don't say anything about it. But really, they got you. Right? You're there. They know, what are you going to do? Turn around and fly home? No, you're going to pay the $50 for parking. You're going to buy their $20 chicken fingers. They're going to eat the $10 churro, and you're going to like it. This is what they do. And what can you do? This is what was going on to a much greater extent. This is what was going on inside of the temple. The people had come to worship. They were there for good reason to offer sacrifices to their God with their own people. So what could they do? You had to change your money to buy the animal. No choice. And worst of all, who this affected the most was the poor. These merchants were taking advantage of every single person there, but those who felt it the most, those who were impacted the most, were the poor. And that's a really big deal in the eyes of Jesus. And then the third issue with all of this was that this demonstrated a lack of compassion. So we have desecration happening, we have exploitation happening, and we have a lack of compassion taking place. See, we know specifically that the, 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 the temple court, specifically for the Gentiles, the Gentile court within the temple, it was supposed to be, meant to be, this beautiful picture of this house of prayer for all of the nations. This is where the nations came together to worship the Lord. But the Jews had turned that Gentile court into a place of business. See, it wasn't that it was just inside the temple. It was that they made a conscious decision not to place it in the Jewish court. That was set apart and holy. We're going to do this in the Gentile court. And really, this was sending a message to the non-Jews who were there, who had traveled, who had come to worship, it was saying to them, you're lesser than us. You're not as important as us. Oh yeah, you're one of us. You've converted to Judaism. We're thankful for that, but you're not like pure. You're not a pure blood. You're not really from birth one of us. They're sending that message here. And to this, to this, what we need to understand is that when it comes to worship, Absolutely, there is this great sense primarily that it's about, worship is about this vertical direction of our hearts towards God. Our hearts go up to the Lord. All that we are, all that we have is directed to our great Lord and King. That is worship, the primary purpose of worship. But there is also a horizontal component to our worship as well, where we are asked by the Lord to actually welcome others into our worship, to come alongside of us in worship. And these Jews there that day during this special significant holiday were failing at both. They are failing in both their love for God, but also they are failing in their love for their neighbor. And so, and so Jesus responds, and he is furious about this. Look at what he does. This is verse 15. 
and making a whip of cords. Did you know that Jesus can make whips? <laughs> making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers. You can imagine, they have these jars there. He's just dumping them out. And then it says, and he overturned their tables. Pretty intense, yeah? And this language here, if you read it in the original language, it is extremely strong. Jesus is mad. Right? You can just imagine Jesus, again, walks into that temple. He's observing the scene. And then he's like, hmm, okay. And he goes over to the cor corner, sits down, and he starts, starts, you know, fashion together. He's making the whip. And you can imagine, like, his mom, right? Even the disciples are kind of like, what, what are they doing? They're with him. Walk over to him like, hey, hey, man, what's going on, right? And Jesus is like, oh, I'm, I'm about to show you, right? It's on, right? It's on, right? I can imagine that. It's like when my, when my mom was upset with me, right? She'd go over. There was this jar. I've told some of you this before, this jar of wooden spoons, right? And I misbehave, and she'd look at me, and she'd, just, she'd look at him like she's going to pick one. Which one? Big one, small one, thick one, and I'd be looking, oh, man, that's what my mom. She's still to this day, I don't know if she has it, but for years she kept this one, hit me, cracked it, split it. She'd still cook with that thing. <laughs> She'd be stirring the pot, a cracked spoon, right? It was a reminder of me, to me. Oh, man, I hurt. Oh, I was a bad kid. I deserved it, Mom. She's watching. She's laughing right now, I guarantee you. Okay, I deserved it. Jesus fashions this whip together and then he just starts quack, cracking that whip like Indiana Jones style. Bah, bah, right? Get out, get out, right? Furious. Justice is being served. Again, this is not the, like, the soft, cuddly Jesus present in the temple. This is a cleansing. That's what's happening. There is some, some true and very real anger being shown here from our Lord. And so in verse 16, Jesus says, And he told those who were selling the pigeons, Take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. And so what do we see here? Well, what we see is this. It's, this is a demonstration of passion and zeal for God and his house. It's zeal. It's a love, actually. The anger is shown, but it's out of a root of love for the Father's house. Jesus is committed to his Father's house. And I think it's worth noting, it's worth noting here, particularly in our cultural context, that there is absolutely zero tolerance shown here. There's no tolerance. See, because especially in our culture, in, the, in our current day and age, in our world, the dominant virtue that is celebrated in our world is tolerance. We are, we are hammered with this. We are told, oh, you just need to accept people for who they are. Give them the benefit of the doubt. Right? What they believe is what they believe. Their truth is their truth. Their ways are their ways. Right? We tolerate each other. And that's, 
<laughs> we uphold that as this great virtue. But this does not look very tolerant here from Jesus, does it? Doesn't look very loving <laughs> to people, right? But let me just say two things on that. First of all, first of all, this is kind of a side note, but I think it's important. First of all, you can actually tell what a person loves by what they hate. See, Jesus hates this. He hates what's taking place because he loves something else so much. Listen, we, we know this, right? Love is not indifferent. It's not indifferent. Love is a passion that leads to action. If there's no action, there's actually no love. Right? Words, words are just words on their own. It's just sentiment. It's just words. But sentiment, <laughs> sentiment doesn't change anything. Action changes things. And here we see Jesus out of love is active. Again, because love is not indifferent. Thinking of this, I'm reminded of our, of our church father, Martin Luther, um, and the reality that he could not allow himself to sit idle while people were being so manipulative and so corrupt within the church. The church at the time was teaching, oh, like you've sinned, so here's what you need to do. You need to pay us. You need to give us money so that we can then forgive your sins. And what they were doing is they were taking that, that money, pocketing some, but also using it to build things for themselves, really. And he couldn't stand it. And so zealously, he spoke out for the truth. But beyond speaking out for the truth, he also did something about it. He put action behind his words. And you and I are also called to be zealous in our worship and with our faith as well. We are called to be zealous for the glory of God. Paul writes this to us in Romans 12, verse 11. He says, do not be slothful in zeal. In other words, don't be lazy when it comes to zeal. Be zealous. Be fervent in spirit, he says. Serve the Lord. Serve the Lord with zeal. Follow Jesus with zeal, with passion, with deep-seated faith and conviction. We see here Jesus was passionate he was a man of zeal because actually he was a man of love. It's also important to remember that Jesus is both the lamb and the lion. And that's what we really see in John chapter 2. We see the same point being made, but sort of in contrast to one another. God cares about, Jesus cares about the Father's house, and we're told this in two different ways. In the beginning of John 2, at the wedding party, which we explored last week, he's very lamb-like, isn't he? He's gentle. He's gracious. He's subdued and quiet, even to the point where the public doesn't know who did this miracle. A few of his disciples saw, and the servants who are serving the water, and, and, you know, that which becomes wine, they saw it, but the wedding doesn't see this take place. Jesus is very subdued, very quiet, very lamb-like. But here in the temple, we see something very different, that he is very lion-like here. This is a public display now. And he is demonstrating a holy 
ferocity because of the corruption that surrounded him. So I love this imagery. I love this imagery that we have in John chapter two, that if you're here today in this place and you have a need, if you're here today and you find yourself brokenhearted, you can actually come to Jesus, the lamb, and he receives you. He welcomes you. But if you presume upon his kindness, if you lack compassion for others, and you tarnish the Lord's name, if there is corruption in and around you, then Jesus comes in like a lion. This is who he is. He's lion and lamb. He is the lamb who who lays down his life for his bride. But he is also the lion of Judah who is zealous for God's glory. And what Jesus does here in the temple, we're told actually leads the disciples to think about, think about this verse in the Psalms. I believe it's Psalm 69. But this is verse 17 in our text. It says this, his disciples remembered that it was written zeal for your house will consume me. This psalm, these words were actually, we know, written by David. And I wrestled with how much to share about this back and forth, back and forth, because it could be a whole other sermon, this this context. But I'll, I'll try my best to make it simple and as short as I can. The context here of this psalm is that, that David was calling his people that he was overseeing as king, calling his people back to true and right worship. They had gone astray. David has deep conviction about this, and so he's calling the nation back to true worship. Unfortunately for David, what he got back in return was resistance and hate. They totally disagreed with him. So David was isolated and alone, sort of in this pursuit of truly worshiping worshiping the Lord. And so David is saying, he's actually saying this to the Lord. He's saying, when you are dishonored, Lord, I am grieved. I actually feel the pain of the pain that you're being shown by others. And here we see Jesus is doing the very same thing. That's why the disciples recall this. God's house is being dishonored. It's being tarnished. And Jesus here in that place is actually in agony over this. He's feeling pain over the situation. But the differences between David and Jesus is Jesus had the authority to do something about it. He could force the issue, and so he does. David was zealous for God's glory. We need to go back to true worship. Jesus, too, in a greater way, is zealous for God's glory, and he does something about it for the glory of God. And so I believe this passage and this scene here in John, what it's actually meant to do, partly, it's meant to make us examine our own hearts as the church. See, God is not just concerned with what we do. He's also concerned with how we do that thing. It's not just about religious attendance. It's about our hearts. 
And this text here is meant to show us, demonstrate to us, that there are some very unacceptable ways to worship God. You can actually worship God wrongly. There's things like dry ritualism, cold indifference, self-centered consumerism. That's a big one in our day. It's meant to show us that we can make worship about other things besides the Lord. It can be about other things besides God's glory. It can be about other things besides revering him and being in awe of him. Worship is not meant to be about just going through the motions or checking off a box on a list. It's about deep care. It's about love. It's about passion. It's about zeal. It's about having a heart of gladness. And I think collectively, as a gathering, I think this should cause us to ask ourselves together, if Jesus were to come here into our place of worship, walk through those glass doors in the back, if he were to walk into this place and stand in the back and observe us and our worship, what would he see? And what would he think about our worship, about our passion, about our zeal? What would he see? Would he stand back there and say, oh my goodness, look, look up in the balcony, look at these people. Oh my, look over even in the corners. Look, wow, this honors me. Look at their hearts towards me. He turned to his disciples and said, do you see those people? Be like that. Would he say that about us? Look at their passion. Look at their dependence. Look at how they see me. Look at how they they behold me. Look at how they treat others. Look at how they, they welcome in other people out of their love and their heart for me. What would he say? Listen, I, I want Jesus to see zealous people here at Freedom Village. The last two, two nights, actually, I was, I was stuck here, just stuck. Repenting from my own heart, but actually repenting on behalf of the whole church. God, are we a people who please you and honors you fully and completely? Are we worth imitating in our worship? Or are we worship you just standing there with cold indifference? Whatever. Every week, this is the routine. We're singing these songs, but really thinking what's for lunch. Is that who we are? Or are we zealous for him and his glory? Let's be about his glory. Let's be zealous for him. That's true worship. Well, that leads us to truth number two today. And truth number one took up 90% of the sermon. Okay, so we're going to fly through the last two points. I promise you it's written this way, okay? I have six pages of notes. The last two points are on the last page and a half. You're good. You're going to get your lunch. That leads us to truth number two today, which is this. True worship requires a right understanding of Jesus. A right understanding of Jesus. 
we see here, Jesus is actually, he's telling people, get out, right? Can you imagine that? Get out of the temple. Can you imagine being that, that angry where Jesus, like he steps in this place, he's like, hey, all of you, get out of this place. Get out of this church building. Get out of here, right? That's what he does. He's cracking the whip. And the Jews there in the temple don't know what's going on. And so they ask him a question. They say to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They, they say to him, who are you? What they're really saying, show us. Show us who you are. In other words, what gives you the right to do this? Who do you think you are? And Jesus, res his response is so interesting because what we see is he definitely does not give them a sign. And Jesus is in the habit of this. The, the people are always asking, give us another miracle, give us another sign. And Jesus will never play that game. Never. So he answers. He answers them. Destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. That's what he says. Now, again, you have to remember, I already walked us through the history a little bit. You need to remember how profoundly important the temple was to the Jews. How significant that place was to the Jews. Uh, for a Jewish person, a good Jewish person, they revolved their life around three things. Their entire lives were surrounded encompassed by three, three things. The temple, the Torah, which is the law, and their land. It's what it means to be Jewish. The temple, the Torah, and their land. That's it. And here is Jesus in the temple. Again, you got to imagine this. This holy, sacred place. And it's during Passover, their most holy holiday. And he says, destroy this, and I will raise it up in three days. Tear it down. Now, the Jews here clearly don't know what he's talking about. I'm not sure the disciples even knew what he was talking about right there on this scene. Because look at how they respond. It's verse 20. The Jews then said, it has taken us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? Right? They're like, I mean, come on, Jesus. Like, we know you're a carpenter. Right? We've heard, you might be a really good one, but it took us collectively as a nation with all the, the, the nation's best craftsmen, builders, it took us 46 years to build this thing. And you're gonna tear it down and build it back up in three days. What are you talking about? And John explains. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, as we, as we read through the gospels and the life of Jesus, we see over and over again, what we see over and over again is that the one universal sign of who Jesus is and what he did is the resurrection. The resurrection Jesus raising to life from the dead shines a light, a spotlight actually, on every single thing that he did, every single thing that he said. The resurrection is proof that Jesus is worthy of worship. It is evidence that he is God. It is our proof that the word became flesh. And this is what Jesus was telling them here. He's talking about his own body. He's saying here to them, I am the true temple. This is the significant portion of the text. I am the true temple. 
after you kill me, which you will, they didn't know this, but he's saying, after you kill me, I will be raised. I will be brought back to life in three days or after three days. That's what this is about. And John says, after that happened, after Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples sat around, got together, and they remembered this instance in the temple. They remembered what Jesus said and what he did this day. And things became really clear for them, even more clear. In other words, they came to a right view of Jesus and then were told, and they believed. They believed in a greater way, a deeper way. You see, to worship rightly, we need a right understanding of Jesus. To worship rightly, we need a right understanding of Jesus, the one who we worship. If we don't get Jesus right, we'll never get our worship right. And what Jesus was teaching the people here, and in effect, now teaching you and I, is that worship is not about going to a place, but about going to a person. He's teaching us here that if you want to meet God, you need to go to Jesus. This is so profound. He's saying something better than the temple has arrived. It's better than the garden. It's better than the tabernacle. It's better than the temple. The temple was where God met with his people. But now you and I meet with God through the person of Jesus Christ. See, the, the temple was where sacrifices were offered. But now we know Jesus is the ultimate sacrifice. Listen, aren't you glad that you and I don't have to travel to Jerusalem every single year carrying pigeons around with us? We don't have to do that any longer. Imagine, like, I have this comfort animal. It's a pigeon on the plane. You know, all you people put their comfort animals on planes now. Drives me crazy. <laughs> Sitting there with, like, a Great Dane next to me because it's, like, it's a comfort animal. You just don't want to put your dog in the bottom. That's what's happening. Can you imagine all these dirty pigeons going around with us? We've got to travel to Jerusalem. Aren't you glad we don't have to travel, journey to a specific place anymore to meet with God? Listen, anytime, anywhere, you are actually, what's true, you are always with God if you have Jesus. He is with you now, here, in this place, dwelling in the Spirit with us. He's always here. We're in his presence right now. Meaning, we're in the garden now. We're in the tabernacle now. We're in the temple now. Here, now. What an amazing gospel truth. What an amazing gospel reality. We get close to God through Jesus. We have hope over the grave because of Jesus. Listen, we actually seek cleansing of our own temples through Jesus. We're made new through Jesus. And the reality of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection has provided us with this assurance, this guaranteed. It's so good. So good. And then a final truth that we see about worship here in John 2 and Jesus in the temple is that true worship begins with genuine belief in Jesus. It's a holy zeal for his glory. It's about having a right understanding of who he is. And then it's having belief in him. 
So here's the truth today. Every single person who is here in this room, every single person watching online, every person who walks our streets in Seoul, in Korea, all the nations, every single person is a worshiper. That's true. We all worship. But to be a true worshiper involves not just rightly understanding who Jesus is, but actually knowing Jesus. And so this is what John writes in somewhat of a transitional paragraph. He says this, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about him, man. For he himself knew what was in man. So here's what's going on. John tells us that people actually started to believe in Jesus. Sounds pretty great, right? Jesus is doing these things and and people start to come to follow him, to believe in him. However, with that, we are told that Jesus actually does not believe in the people. In other words, Jesus knew, he knew that their faith was empty. He knew that their faith wasn't genuine, that it wasn't real and lasting faith. See, the people were attracted to him, but apparently it was for all the wrong reasons. Apparently they didn't really entrust their lives to him. They didn't really, they weren't really willing to sacrifice and to to give their all to him. And this serves as a great warning to us as well. To those of us who attend weekly worship service, who say that they believe in Jesus, it's a warning to us. It should ask us a question or cause us to ask ourselves a question. Why are we following him? What's our motivation for doing this? What's drawing us to Jesus? Are we resting all that we have and all that we are in him? So maybe you're here today as we come to a close. Maybe you're here today and we, maybe all of us need to do this, but maybe you're here today and you need to repent of your coldness in worship. Maybe you're here today, you need to repent of your low view of God. This is a, this is a great passage in terms of compelling you and I to, to pray for fresh zeal in our lives. It should cause us to to pray that we would hate our sin, hate our idolatry, and pray that we would be known as a people who love God and who love our neighbor. And if you're not a follower of Jesus here in this place, I know there's several of you here. You're, You're certainly more than welcome to be here. We're so glad that you're here if you're not a follower of Jesus. But if you are here today and you're not a follower of Jesus in this place, the offer today, the offer to you today is Jesus. To put your faith in him and him alone. To make him the center of your worship. The center of your being. To put your hope in him and to find your joy in him. That you would look to the one who has provided a way for us to know God. You look to the one who has provided us a way to truly worship God. So the message here in John 2 is that Jesus himself came as the final temple. He is now the place, the person that we go to, to meet and to be with God. 
Jesus came to replace the temple. And as the Lamb of God, he was the once and for all sacrifice. So that the old sacrificial system established in and through the temple is now obsolete. So if you're here today, you want to be with God today. You want to be in his presence. You want to experience his presence today. It's really simple. Be with Jesus. Be zealous about Jesus. Know the truth about Jesus and choose to believe in Jesus. He's a good savior. He's a good God. He's the true temple. And we know this through his resurrection. Amen? Let me pray for us.